This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime viewers. So, tonight we are learning Le'ilu Nishmat Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechaskel Ben Avraham. So, so uh, the, the, we're continuing the series on uh, Perke Avos. And just a reminder, and I'm going to probably give this reminder quite often because it's very, very important. The whole idea behind this series is to become a better person. That is the idea behind moral and ethics is to improve yourself into uh, becoming a better person, a better wife, a better spouse, a better husband, a better daughter, son, parent, employee, employer, all of the above, better Jew, uh, most importantly. So the idea behind all these classes are so that you should take something upon yourself and change yourself, meaning that that is the idea behind all almost every class that I give, but this even more so, the importance of going and improving yourself. So so keep that in mind while you listen to these classes, while you while you absorb the information on what you're going to take and what you're going to change and what you're going to uh what you're going to do. So the uh and just if anybody wants a previous recording, you get them on Torah Anytime, which is the recommended place. Uh it, it is also on podcasts and things like that, but I generally recommend, uh, you know, Torah anytime. If anybody, uh, you know, if anybody has the ability, if not, I'll do it later. I can post the link, uh, to, to Torah anytime on, uh, on the chat. But okay. So now let us, uh, let us begin. So we're, we're beginning actually with the first. So last, last week we spoke about the introduction. So today we're going to be speaking about the first a Mishnah of the first parak. So the Mishnah starts off with Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai. Moshe got the Torah from Har Sinai. Umesara li Yeshua gave it to Yeshua. Yeshua v'zakenim. Yeshua gave it over to the zakenim. Just bear with me for a moment. V'zakenim l'davim l'davim Yisrael l'achiknes l'gedela. Sort of a transmission on how the Torah was given, meaning that we have the the there's documentation from where we stand today. From rabbi to student, rabbi to student, rabbi to student, all the way back to Har Sinai. Meaning, there is there is the transmission is documented, and we know exactly how that there was no gaps in that uh, in that transmission. So now the question that comes up, this is the first Mishnah in Pirkei Alba. So the question that comes up is like, why are we giving this transmission? Why are we saying, right? So we're starting Pirkei Alba, which is not in the beginning of the This is a This is a, a, a section in the Mishnah, which we spoke about last week. This is not the beginning of the Mishnah. This is like somewhere in the middle. And we start off the first Mishnah, the first intro, it's kind of like the the intro to the introduction, well actually it's the introduction, the intro to the introduction we spoke last week, so this is the real introduction, we start off by saying the way we got the Torah is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God gave the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu gave it to Yeshua, Yeshua gave it to the Zakanim, Zakanim gave it to the prophets and Nevi'im, Nevi'im gave it to the Aches Knesset Del, the men of the great assembly, and that was the, that was the transmission uh, of, of the Torah. The question that all of, most of the commentators ask is why do we need this transmission over here? Like what's the, what's the Chiddush that we're, to, why we need to know that we know where the Torah came from? So I'd like to share with you three answers. So the first answer is that if you look at all the other Mishnayas, it all deals with a specific pasuk, a specific verse in the Torah, meaning that 
you 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 have you dealing with sukkah, so it's dealing with this pasuk in the Torah, and now the Mishnah, the oral law, is coming to explain that verse that discuss it in the Torah. When you learn Perkei Avos, you don't see any connection to any verses like that are that are put in the air. Now, oh, where do we learn this from? We learn this from this and this you know verse in the Torah. So because we don't connect it directly into the Torah, into the verses of the Torah, so as a mention of authority, the 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 Perkei Avos starts off with the transmission that this too came from you know Har Sinai. So that's answer number one. And this answer will clarify, will be clarified as we continue. Answer number two is something very interesting. We know we have 613 commandments, right? There's 613 mitzvot. If, if you are to figure out or, or just even guess, what would you think would be the number of mitzvot that are going to be in Bereshis and Shemos and Vayikra and Bamidbar and Devarim, right? So there's five books of Moses, there's, there's the Chamishi Chum Shetara, there's the five different uh, books. In the first one, Bereshis, how many mitzvot do you think would comprise of that 613? And the answer is quite shocking. The answer is there are three. There are three mitzvot. Uh, I, I believe it's Puravu, uh, Brismila, and Gidanasha, if I'm not mistaken, uh, off the top of my head. So th- there's just three mitzvahs in the, in the first, in the entire first safer is three mitzvahs, right? Why? Now the question is asked, like, why the introduction to the Torah, you should, you know, God, give us like all the commandments. I mean, obviously that's the purpose of it, right? To tell us how to live our life and how to do. Why is it that the entire safer Bereshis, not the Parsha Bereshis, the entire safer Bereshis, from Bereshis to Vayichi, only consists of three commandments? And, you know, Shemos and Vayikra consists of, you know, the bulk of it, but why is it that you have just three in the first. So the answer is is that the the Sefer Bereshis, there's another word for there's another name for it. And that is called the Sefer Hayashar. Sefer Hayashar, the, the translation of that means like the straight path. Meaning that Sefer Bereshis teaches us how to be a good person. There is a lot of lessons that are learned in Sefer Bereshis that are not connected directly to a, uh, you know, to a mitzvah, but it teaches us how to be a, a, a straight person. Derech Eretz Kabel right? To be a good person is, is, is very, very important. And before you start everything that you have to, you have to be a good person. And you look at the entire sto- story after story in Sefer Bereshis speaks of, it teaches us lessons on how to be good. Avram Avinu was told, that the city of Sodom, which was his, like, the antithesis of Avramovinu, he, you know, spoke everything about spirituality, and they were the exact opposite. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when God told Avramovinu that they were going to be destroying, that the, the stone is going to be destroyed, Avramovinu says, good riddance. You know, they're, they're, you know, they you can't say that, uh, you know, they're the, uh, their enemy, or you can't say that they're the competition, but they were definitely not aligned with the way Avramovinu was thinking. And the way that Avramovinu was trying to preach the entire world about one God. So when I could, but however, the, 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 the reality was, and when God told Avram Avinu that the city of Sodom is going to be destroyed, he prayed for them. He prayed that they, and he tried to save them. 
you go on and you look at the stories of Ramavinu three days after Brismila at an old age. What was he doing? He wasn't resting. He had all the excuses to rest. But no, he went out and he wanted to do chesed. He wanted to do kindness. He wanted to do achnasas archem. He wanted to have guests. You had the modesty of Sarah. You have Yaakov and Lavan. Yaakov and Asa. Yosef and his brothers. Yosef and Paro. There's lesson after lesson after lesson that speaks about how to become a normal human being, a decent human being. So the question that Reb Chaim Vital asks, so wait a minute, if this is so imperative, if this is so important, that before all the commandments, Sefer Barashi speaks about being a good person, how come we don't have a straight up commandment, be a moral and ethical person, be a good person, it should be one of the commandments, if anything you think it should be the first commandment, be a good person, and keep Shabbos, keep kosher, keep modesty, so on and so forth. Why is it that this is not listed as part of the 613 commandments as a standalone mitzvah? Again, we have the Haftar, we have have a lot of different mitzvahs that comprise on being moral and ethical, but there's no direct, just like be a good person commandment. And answers Reb Chaim Vital and Shari Kedusha that the reason why it's not included in the commandments is because it's a prerequisite for a command for for all the mitzvahs. Meaning, as a prerequisite, you have to work on yourself to becoming a good person. Now, that doesn't mean that be like, okay, wait a minute, I can't keep kosher, I can't keep you know Shabbos, I can't do all those things because I'm not a good person yet. No, 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 you keep all those things, but just know the importance of this is as it's a prerequisite to go and become. Uh, you know, uh, 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 a good, uh, let's just call it a good Jew. So that's answer. Yes. Isn't that all in the Tanya though? The Tanya is based on the, or- Tanya is actually based on extreme Kabbalistic concept. Um, uh, but the, the, we're, we're speaking about the, the commandments. Now, Tanya is, is partially a Musr Sefer also. All the Muslims farms speak about becoming a good person, but there's no direct commandment in the five books of Moses and the Hamisha Kumshatara that says you must be a good person. It says things that cause you to, that, that you need to be a good person, uh, you know, like you have to give charity, you have to do kindness, you have to do many, many things, but there's no direct commandment. There is a lot of, in, based on the oral law, there is books and books and svarim upon svarim upon svarim that speak about becoming a good person and, and character, you know, improving your character trait, but there's no direct commandment on it. So that's answer number two. Answer number three is something that we're going to dwell on in a while. And this will also correlate to answer number one and we'll clarify answer number one as well. So answer number three is that we know that the written Torah that came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Also, we know that the oral law came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. How do we know that the oral law also came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu? It's very simple. You, there is not, it, when you look at the written Torah, you cannot understand it without the oral, oral Torah. Uh, I believe it was Rab Hirsch who explains that the written, the, the written Torah is sort of like the professor's notes, but then you have to go to the lecture to understand what the professor is talking about. Meaning that there's many mitzvos that if you just read the written Torah, you're not going to be able to understand it. You need the oral Torah to be able to explain the written Torah. And they came hand in hand. So we know that the written Torah and the oral Torah, that came from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that came from, from Hashem on Har Sinai. And this was passed down generation to generation. But then you come to Perkei You come to a, a Sefer, that, a Mishnah that speaks about moral and ethics. 
And the way that it's presented, it says, this rabbi said you have to be work on this. And this rabbi says you have to work on this. And this rabbi says focus on these three things. And this rabbi says if you improve this three things, you're going to be a great... You know, like, it seems almost as if the rabbis came and said, you know what? Upon contemplating and upon understanding the depths of, of human psychology and human physiology and human understanding, I came to the, to, to the baseline of saying that this, if you want to be a good person, this is what you have to work on. So we might think that the rabbis, they came up with their own moral and ethic codes and they this is what they put in the Mishnah. But the, the Mishnah starts off, Moshe Kibbal Torah Messina. Moshe was the one who gave the Torah from Messina and he passed it down generation to generation to prove to us, to show to us that everything that we're learning over here, every moral and ethical code that we're speaking about tonight and we're going to be speaking about for the future and if you're learning Perkei Elvis, all of it, that's all from Torah from Moshe Messina, meaning that it's not something that the rabbis made up. It's not something that the rabbis contemplated and meditated upon and came to the conclusion that this is the right thing to do. Everything that you learn about moral and ethical codes in the Torah, that it too, just like the written law, and just like the oral law came from Har Sinai, so too the ethical and moral law also came from Har Sinai. Now the question that we have to ask is why? Why do we need God to tell us to be moral and ethical? I mean, it's there are things that we understand that God needs us to say. You know, like keeping kosher, for example. No one under the right, you know, you know, mindset will come up with that and say, you know what, this is why you have to do, unless it's for health reasons or things like that. But other, other considerations, you wouldn't come to that conclusion that you have to keep kosher. So you have to tell, God tells us you have to, you have to keep kosher. Paraduma, the red, you know, sacrifice, there are certain things that we understand why we need God to tell us, but not to steal, not to murder. That's kind of obvious, right? Why do we need to have this from Torah, from Sinai, from Hashem? Why can't we come to this to our own conclusion? And in fact, to make the the question a little bit stronger, you look at every single culture speaks about ethics and morality. In order for a society to survive, there has to be some sort of ethics. There has to be some sort of morality. There has to be some sort of code of conduct. There has to be some sort of rules and regulations that you have to follow. So the question that we have to to discuss and to come to an understanding is what is different about Judaism? What is different about Yiddishkeit that comes also with moral and ethics? So when you look at other cultures, other, you know, nationalities, other, you know, different time, you know, where, where, you know, like a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago, who decides what's right and wrong? Who decides morality? When you say that you're a good person, what does that mean? Are you good in your eyes of your neighbors? Because you mow your lawn and you take out your garbage? Are you good in the eyes of your government because you pay your taxes? Like what defines morality? What defines ethics in other cultures? And in order to explain this, you look at things that may seem obvious, right? Killing, everybody knows is wrong, right? Murder, Sounds very obvious that it's wrong. But when we think about it, murder wasn't always wrong. In fact, you know, you look about a few thousand years ago, human sacrifice was not only not considered wrong, it was considered praised. It was a high thing that, you know, to do. It was something that was considered higher. So meaning that murder in that sense was not only okay, it was like a high thing. And you may say, okay, that was back then in primitive years. They didn't understand. They didn't. What about in our day and age? When you speak about something called abortion, is abortion bad? Is abortion okay? Is abortion? You look at you, you know you, you look at the, the in our day and age, uh, you know what what why is it that people believe 
and spout and scream that abortion is okay. And it's called that the child is not considered alive until they come out. Who, who gave that decision? Who decided that's when the child is considered a child and not when it's in the womb? Maybe someone's going to come and it's going to say, you know, when, when a child is considered, you know, fully, uh, you know, as a child, uh, at 12 years old. Meaning you could abort until 12 years old. Kind of a trial and error, return to sender, if you don't uh, like what you what you see. Meaning that what defines people to decide that abortion is okay? If you look back a few decades ago, not a few centuries ago, not a few millennia ago, a few decades ago, any non-life-threatening abortion was considered murder. Today, not only is it normal, but they want that the public funds pay for abortion. So wait, what changed now and 50 years ago? What was the difference of morality and ethics that back then it was okay, it was not okay, it was considered murder, and now not only is it okay, but they want you with your taxes to pay for that. And that, where did this come from? How did that change so drastically? Murder you think is bad, right? We say murder is bad. Where does this fall? What about physician-assisted suicide? Is where a doctor helps a patient commit suicide. Of course, there's regulations and things like that, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's a doctor helping someone commit suicide. You know, this is legal in 10 U.S. states. It's legal in 10 states uh, in, in, in America. So wait, so, so is murder bad or murder good? So if you start defining, well, murder is bad in this situation, but in this situation, before this amount of months of pregnancy, it's okay. If this patient is sick, it's okay. If this patient is depressed, it's okay. If you start defining and deciding where and why and when and how murder is okay and not, who makes you the deciding factor? Who makes you decide what moral and ethical is? And you look at other cultures, everybody has a different decision. Everybody has it. So when you look at, 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 you, you look at abortion, you look at all things how does it make sense and it's very interesting i saw from rabbi dr avram tversky he said he explains this phenomenon he says the the whole phenomenon with abortion he says he, he you know like he explains it that it's quite simple he says that before the advances of medical science of the drugs the good drugs uh, well, what's good drugs you know the the you know pharmacology and diagnostic tools and the surgical procedures procedures the lifespan of human beings were very short. In fact, if you go back to the year 1900, the average lifespan was 46 years old. 46 years old. Meaning that most people here will are for sure above middle age in, in the 1900s. 46 years old is the average lifespan. And not only that, infant mortality was very, very high. Childhood diseases was extremely high. Tuberculosis took the lives of many young people. So the community, people at large, needed people. So when they terminated pregnancy, it was a crime against society. We need people. We need over here. This is a vital commodity. People are a vital commodity, and we need people. How do you go and kill somebody? The, the lifespan is very short. People are sick. People are dying. People are not surviving. But today, things are radically different. The average lifespan today, Baruch Hashem, is about 80 years old. And the infant mortality rate is very rare. Childhood diseases, thanks to immunizations, are almost gone for people that immunize their kids. You know, tuberculosis is almost, is gone. Like, you think about young people, 
are so much healthier than they used to be. Middle-aged people are so much healthier than they used to be. Older people are healthier and alive than they used to be. But what's happening is, is that young people are paying unprecedented amount into their social security, into their Medicare, into all these benefits. And every one of them are having concerns. What's going to be when they get to retirement age? Right now, they're paying more than they're giving. So what's going to be when when it comes my time to collect on social security? What's going to be with my time to collect the benefit? Meaning that every time the Medicare and Medicaid is paying, they're they're paying for, for, for the health benefits for people. It's taking out of that pool where when it's going to be my turn, who says what's going to be left? So today's society is not in need of more people. We're fine if we lose a few people. We're fine with the overpopulation, the whole thing. We're fine that we don't need so many people. So all of what's happening is, is that ethics and morals change. What used to be bad is now considered okay. So what happens is it changed the morals of people change, the ethics of people change based on the social needs. Children, not too long ago, and in some countries still today, they work from morning to night. In America, in any civilized you know country, it's considered abuse. Can child abuse? Can't have a child work from morning to night when you can't even get a fifteen hour work week for a child. You can't. In the olden days, it was normal. Not only was it normal, it was the right thing to do. You help your parents out in the field. Why wouldn't you help your parents out in the field? Go plow. Go go collect apples. Whatever it is that you need to do, you got to go work. Now it's abuse. So wait. So back then it was okay, and now it's not. So what makes the deciding factor? Who who defines it? You know. Not too long ago, the way that you got married, a man got married to a woman, he's, he purchased his wife, right? He went to the father-in-law and said, here's 50 cows, right? And a, a good wife maybe will be worth 100 cows or something like that. Now try to buy some woman with 100 cows, see where you're going to end up with. You know, like you, you think about it, how so much has changed in society. And not only has it changed in our society, it ripples down into our ethical and moral understanding. And to take this matter even a step further is that people force their thoughts onto other people. They're not forcing on what God said. They're not forcing on what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said. That is one thing. But they're forcing their own thoughts. You look at the, in general, uh, you know, and again, this is not something that I, uh, uh, you know, spew often, but the, the West defines themselves as a superior moral authority. And they define this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And when they look at Eastern or African civilizations that do not go according to the Western moral compass, they say that you're wrong and what you're doing is bad. So what makes it, if you think about this for a second, and and let's use practical examples, right? You know, America sticks their nose into many countries. What you're doing is bad, what you're doing is good. What you're doing is ethical, what you're doing is not. The question is, is that taking money a factor aside, because that's really the only reason that they have that power, but what gave you the power to say, this is right and this is wrong? Is it because you have more money? Is it because you have the highest per capita income? Is that why you have the definitive decision-making of what's right and what's wrong. So we stick ourselves into other people's lives, into other people's countries, 
and we decide this is right, this is wrong. Why? Democracy is the right way to go. You know, uh, uh, dictatorship is wrong. Is it? Is a corrupt democracy better than a good dictatorship? Again, I'm not saying one way or another, but like, what made you decide that this is okay and this is not? What gave you the power to say abortion is okay at this stage, but not okay at that stage? This idea is known as moral relativism. And again, we spoke about this previously before. But this is the idea that there is no absolute rules to determine whether something is right or wrong. And that's very scary. If you look at society and there's no real rules of right or wrong, but just based on what people feel and think based on society norms, is a very scary thing to just like wing it and say, well, you know what, this is the reason why it's okay and this is the reason why it's not. You look at it in some cultures, it's normal to bribe. In other cultures, it's frowned upon. And in other cultures, you get punished for it. So wait a minute. What's bribery? Is that good or bad? It could be normal. It could be good. It could be frowned. Not good, but like, you know, not terrible. And it could be really bad where you get punished for it and thrown into prison. So wait a minute. What, so, so what's the answer? Is this right or is this wrong? So in this country, it's right. In this country, it's frowned upon. In this country, you're going to go to life in prison. Does that make any sense? Is that a defining factor? Now, again, when you deal with laws and regulation based on a country, fine. But when you deal with moral and ethical codes, that it's not only based on what the government says. It's not based on the rules of the government. You have to think about it. What codes are you following? You know, people say, I'm a good person. Based on who? Based on what? You're a good person for what? For your government? For your neighbor? In this country? What about if you do what you do in a different country? Maybe you're considered an infidel. Maybe you can say, maybe you're a bad person. Maybe you're the holiest person in the, in the entire, in the entire country. But what makes you to think that you, you know, people come and they say, oh, why do good things, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Meaning, what they're trying to say is, I'm a good person, and bad things are happening to me. So I ask them, usually, it's like, do you follow the Torah? Like, I don't follow the Torah per se, you know, like, maybe I don't keep, you know, all the mitzvahs, but I'm a good person. And I respond, says who? Who told you that you're a good person? Are you the, are you the judge and say like, you know what, I'm, I'm a good person. I decided upon myself based on my own understanding and my own, uh, you know, moral and ethical codes that I'm a good person. Says who? You're a good person in America? Chances are, if you're a good person in America, you're probably not the best person in Pakistan. You know, you're probably not, you know, the, you know, the best person in India. Like, when you, there's so many different countries and so many different moral and ethical codes. So what defines you as a good person? So you don't murder somebody? Does that make you good? You don't steal? Does that make you a good person? What defines you as a good person? So, and this really brings it down to how you have people say, you know, people come to me they're like, why does God, why do God care if I keep kosher, if I keep the Torah, if I keep Shabbos, if I keep modesty, as long as I'm a good person? And then, you know, a, a proper response be like, interesting, interesting. So how do you, are you a good person? Be like, yeah, I am yeah, a very, very good person. I haven't murdered anybody in the last like three years at least, you know, like I haven't stolen any money in the past like six months at least. And like they defined what's considered good based on their own mindset. And I'll tell you what makes this matters even more, you know, skewed is that people base their morality based on the entertainment that they watch.
So they watch something and be like, well, I'm not as bad as this, you know, crime lord, uh, you know, who has murdered 7,000 people and has sold drugs to children and who knows what bad things has done. So, you know, I'm a good person. Like, you know, so like we associate ourselves in certain circles and that's how we judge ourselves. And that's, again, it's a normal thing to do. But when we step back and we think about it, what defines morality? What defines you as a good person? And this is really something that we should step back and think, are you a good person? Because many of us, even the from people, even the religious people, the from from birth and people that were always religious and are learning Torah and they think of themselves as a good person. Stop for a second and say, wait a minute, am I a good person because of I live in America and I follow the laws and regulations? Or am I a good person because I follow the Torah and the mitzvahs? And the more that you think about it, the more that you realize that you're a, you're generally a good person. And many people, you know, this is the way that they unfortunately feel is that they are a good person because that is the way that they, you know, kind of, you know, based off society, based off the, the secularism, based off what in America they consider themselves a good person. So the differences between morality and ethics in all other cultures in all other time frames, is that when we're learning Pirkei Avos, and when you're learning the Torah and the moral, the, the, the ethics from the Torah, and morality from the Torah, this is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Meaning that everything that we're learning, this is not based on my own thoughts, a rabbi's own thoughts, this person's thoughts, an ancient rabbi's thoughts. This is all from God. Meaning that this is what God said is good, and this is what God said is bad, based on morality and based on ethics and based on becoming a good person. Torah, and hence, Torah ethics, morality, it's immutable, it's unchanging. Not even a prophet can change even a single word of the Torah. So what was forbidden, what was frowned upon, what was not allowed in Harsinai remains forbidden, it remains frowned upon, it remains not allowed to this day. Nothing changed. Not in the primitive days when you had to plow with a cow to when you could very soon fly in your car or, you you know, other advances of, you know, technology. I don't want to go to AI because I almost said that. But, like, we have so much advances. The same thing that was wrong then is wrong now and it's going to be wrong in the future. Now, this idea that Torah ethics is from the Torah, meaning that everything that we learn is from the Torah. I want to share with you something from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, page 11a. That Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, who happens to be the author, uh, not the author, the, he compiled the Mishnah. He was sitting and teaching. And uh, he had, uh, you know, the, he smelled the odor of garlic. Everybody knows that if you eat garlic, uh, your neighbors suffer. <laughs> yeah, if you're going, let's put it this way. If you're going out on a date, you should probably avoid eating garlic because it, it smells. And smell the smell, you know, kind of travels. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was very sensitive and he couldn't tolerate the smell. So he, he was in the middle of giving a class and he just couldn't tolerate it, the smell. And he said, whoever ate garlic should stand up and leave. And Rav Chia stood up and left. Now, when the people saw that Rav Chia, which is a hush of a, you know, Rav, he left out of respect for him, they all got up, all the students got up and all left. Rabbi, the next day, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rabbi Huda Nasi, he found Rabbi Chia 
and he said to him, "Are you the one that disturbed my father by by coming with the, you know eating garlic and smelling up the the place?" And Rabbi said to him, "says you know like I would never do such a thing, but I took the blame. Why? Because I didn't want the person to, that ate the garlic and was at fault to be embarrassed." And that's why I took the blame. I got up and I left and everybody happened to leave after them. But really, I just took it because I just did that because I didn't want the person to be embarrassed. So the Gemara goes on and says, where did Rabbi Chia learn this this uh, thing from? Where did he learn how to do this from? So the Gemara says he learned it from Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir, in the time of Rabbi Meir, they, uh, there was a woman who came to the uh, base madrash where Rabbi Meir taught. And she said, she, she gave a generalization. She says, one of you, Stut, uh, married me, betrothed me through intercourse. So, in order to avoid embarrassment, Rabbi Meir gave her a bill of divorce, a get, and then every student gave also a bill of divorce, meaning that it was not a proper, it was not the right thing to do. So, the every student to not embarrass a person who did this thing, every student went and gave this woman a bill of divorce. So. This way, this woman was divorced, and no one knows who was the person that was uh, the one who actually did this uh, did this act. Then the Gemara goes on, very nice. And where did Rameir learn this? And he says Rameir learned this from Shmuel Akatan. What happened with Shmuel Akatan? The Gemara goes on and says that Rabbi Gamliel said, "Bring me seven sages because they want to intercal intercalate the um, the the year." In the months and the dates, you know, in a complex thing, they needed specifically seven sages. So the next day, Rabbi Gamil goes into the room and he looks around and he sees instead of seven, there's eight, meaning somebody's here that wasn't invited. So Rabbi Gamil said, who came here without permission? So Shmuel Akatan stood up and said, I am the one who came without permission. I just came because I wanted to learn. I wanted to observe, um, you know, to learn this this uh, practical halacha. So Rabbi Gamil said to him, you sit down because it, you're fit to, you know, to stay over here. You're truly worthy. Because really, the idea behind this is that only those that were invited to interculate the year can really come. But people came that, one person came that didn't. But because Shmuel Akatan, he was invited. But he didn't want to embarrass a person that came uninvited. So he took the hit and he stood up. And the Gemara goes, where did Shmuel, where did Shmuel Akatan learn this from? And it says, Shmuel Akatan learned this from Shechania ben Yechiel. And the, the, you know, the, I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but the Gemara goes on and says, where did, Shmuel, where did Shechania ben Yechiel learn? And he learned it from Yeshua ben Yechiel. So, so meaning, the way that the Torah is, why, why is the Gemara giving this, you know, uh, you know, this information? That everything that we learn, we learn because we have a source for it. You know why you do this thing? Because we have a source for it that this rabbi did it, this rabbi did it, all the way back to Harsinai. We have a source for everything. And that's why when we're dealing with moral and ethicals, we have a, we have a source for it. We have a source. And this is why we're doing it. You know, to, to explain this matter a little bit more clear, Rav Shalom Shradran, he was taking uh, one of his uh, children to the doctor. And Rav Isaac Sher saw him and he says, you know, where are you going? And he says, you know, my son is sick. I'm taking my uh, son to the doctor. And um, so Rav Isaac, uh, you know, responded. He says, why why are you taking your son to the doctor? So Rav Shadron thought maybe he didn't hear. He says, you know, because uh, my uh, he's sick. And Rav Isaac responded, so why are you taking him to the doctor? And Rav Shadron says, because he's sick. And this went back and forth for like quite a few times. And, you know, several times. 
And until until finally, you know, Rav Shadron realized that Rav Isaac was trying to teach him something over here. So the final time that he says, so why are you taking him to the doctor? You know, Rav Shadron just, you know, kept silent and he was waiting to hear what Rav Isaac Sher was going to say. And, you know, Rav Isaac, you know, responded and says, you know, that if you're taking your son to the doctor, this means that the older animal is taking the younger animal to the doctor. So Rav Shalajadron, you know, it was, you know, like his facial expression was very confused. Like he didn't understand, like, what are you talking about? So Rav Isaac, you know, went and, you know, explained every living creature has to tend to their, you know, children, has to tend to their young. At this moment, if you're bringing your child to the doctor, you're, you're acting just as an animal would. You're taking care of your child. But if you understand that you're performing the chesed, for a Jewish soul that is in need of salvation, that is sick and needs a doctor, then you're fulfilling a mitzvah of the Creator. This will distinguish you from an animal. Meaning there are things that are common sense that are not even common sense that are ingrained in uh, uh, a parent to do. But that's not the only reason why we're doing it. We're doing it because it's the act of chesed. It's something that we act to do. We do so many things in our day-to-day life. We do it anyways, right? We feed our children. We pay for their tuition. We bring them to school. We, you know, we get them dressed. We do all these things to the children. And we think it's our responsibility because we're a parent. And the answer is, yeah, you are a parent. But so is an animal. And the animal has the same responsibility. But you know what differentiates between you and an animal, between you and them? is that you're doing this because it's a chesed for the child. You're doing a chesed for your child. Granted, you may be obligated, but nonetheless, if you think about it, this is the beauty, the beauty of Yiddish guy, is where you, if you have to do something, you could do it anyway, you're going to do it anyway, but you could do it and get reward for it to a higher level, meaning that you're doing it because the Baruch Hu told you to do it. We're going to be doing many things Anyways, right? We do it anyways. But all it changes is a mindset. It's a mindset of saying, you know what? I'm doing this as a chesed. And it's, by the way, it's not easy. It's very hard. It's hard, but st- stop every once in a while and think about, you know, like I'm driving my kids to school. I'm going, I'm bringing my kid to the doctor. It's a chesed. You're doing a chesed for another Jewish soul. You're doing a chesed for another human being. There was a successful, wealthy businessman that unfortunately passed away at a young age. And he had a young son. And the son wanted to get into the business. He had to support the family. He was the oldest son. And he had to support the family. So the mother was saying, you know, you don't have to, you know, like a, you know, better, better that, you, you know, you don't need to. Like she was trying to convince him not to. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, he wanted to, you know, he was a man of the house. He wanted to stand up. He wanted to go and help out. So he decided he was going to push forward and he was going to, he was going to get into the business. So he gets into the business and he starts, you know, calling the distributors, calling, you know, the contractors. And the contractor sees they're dealing with a kid. So they start taking advantage and they start, you know, the vendors start overpaying, you know, overcharging and, you know, like, uh, oh, they won't, they won't overpay. They overcharge, uh, you know, they don't pay, you know, they push it off and, uh, you know, not long story short, he ends up, you know, losing a lot of money and people took advantage of him and they lose, they lost a lot of money. And, uh, you know, he, he was sitting in his office and he realized that he had to declare bankruptcy because he, he couldn't pay, he couldn't pay anybody back. He couldn't, he was like, he was like stuck. And as he's sitting over there, he realizes fate, he starts crying. He's crying for a few minutes and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. 
someone walks in. This distinguished-looking gentleman walks in and says, can I help you? And he says, my name is so-and-so. I came here to give you this. And he drops this manila envelope, this big envelope, on his desk. And he says, what's this? He figures it's a, you know, some sort of lawsuit, some sort of bill that he has to pay. He opens it up, and it's wads and wads of $100 bills. And he says, what is this? And he says, this is for you. He says, what do you mean? He says, what's for you? He says, it's for you to, you know, to use. He says, you know, I don't need charity. He says, you know, like, I, I give charity. I don't need charity. And he says, no, 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 this is not charity. So he says, so, so what is this money? Think of it as a loan. He says, you know, a loan. He says, I, you know, I'm so in the hole. I don't know how am I going to pay you back, and I don't know when I'm going to pay you back. And the businessman says, listen, listen. He says, use this to try to build your business up. I'm investing in it, in you. If you're able to pay me back, good. I'm never going to ask you for the money. I'm never going to come to you. If you're able to pay me, pay me. If you're not able to pay me, don't worry about it. Try to invest this in your business. And if you do succeed, then you pay me back. So the guy is thinking, he says, you know, it's sort of a pity loan, but he didn't have a choice. You know, he had a, you know, a family to support. He was a yesum. He had, you know, his mother, his siblings. And he thought about it for a few moments and he said, you know what? I'm going to accept. Uh, you know, and he thanked him. He thanked him profusely. He took that money and he learned from his mistake. He went to his vendors and he started up the business again and he made sure he didn't get, he got paid on time. He, he just, he, he learned from all his previous mistakes. And before long, you know, before long, he was very, very successful. And he goes, uh, collects the fifty thousand. The first thing that he does, collects the fifty thousand dollars of profit, goes over to this other businessman, and he goes over to his office, and he puts it also in, a, in this big manila envelope. And he goes into the office, he puts it down on the desk, and the businessman says, "What's this?" And he says, "It's payment." He says, "Payment for what?" And he, this businessman peers open, and he sees the wads and wads of hundreds, and he says, "What? Well, what is this?" He says, you know, $50,000 you lent me, you know, not too long ago. Baruch Hashem, I was successful. I wanted to pay you back. And uh, the businessman pushes the envelope in the envelope away and he says, I'm sorry, I can't take it. And the guy says, what do you mean? He says, you told me it wasn't charity. You told me it was, a, it, it was an investment. You told me that it was a business loan. He says, and I'm paying you back. And this uh, businessman says, says, let me explain what happened. Let me, you know, he says, 15 years ago, I was, you know, in business for quite some time and I made a few bad investments and I got myself into a very sticky situation and I almost also was declaring bankruptcy and a businessman came into my office and handed me $50,000. I said, what is this? And he said, it's a loan. He says, uh, what do you mean a loan? He says, I don't know if I can pay you back. He says, no. He says, I'm not going to ask you for the money. I'm not going to, he says, if you want to pay me back, if you're able to pay me back, you pay me back then. And I was thinking, I said, I didn't want to take it, but I decided, you know what? I have a family to support, and not only I have a family to support, I, I support a lot of yeshivas. I, I, with my business, I support a lot of uh, you know people learning Torah, and I decided to swallow my ego and take this loan. I took the loan, and, and Baruch Hashem, I was, uh, yeah, I was able to build myself back up again, and I went to pay back my benefactor. And when I went to him, and I said, here's the $50,000, and he says, I'm sorry, I can't take it. And he says, what do you mean? I thought it was a loan. He says, no, no, no. He says, it was a loan. He says, but the way you're going to pay me back is you're going to find someone else in need and you're going to give that person the $50,000. You're going to give that per- you're going to pay it forward. So, you know, not too long after I built it up, you know, I heard about your situation and I paid it forward to you. So now what I am telling you is I paid back my loan to you and you want to pay back your loan to me. What you have to do is now you have to find somebody else and then you give that person the money and help that person, you know, build up their business again. Now, I tell you the story as an introduction to the next story. And this next story is a story that was told over by Rabbi Pesach Kron. 
He says it over himself. You know, when he was 21 years old, his father passed away. And he was the oldest of seven children. His father was a mole, and he taught him how to be a mole. But the problem was, is Rav Pesach Kron was 21 years old when he needed to support his his mother and his seven seven siblings. So uh, six siblings. So so he had to you know go and start working. And it was very difficult because no one would hire a 21-year-old mohel. So, you know, he was, they were struggling, the family, in the beginning. And then a man came from Rabbi Krohn's shul. And his name was Mr. Israel. And he gave him an envelope for uh, $1,500. And Rabbi Krohn looked at it and he says, what is this? And he says, this is for you. And Rabbi Krohn says, we're not poor. We don't need charity. And he says, no, 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 it's not a charity. It's a loan. He says, it's a loan. I says, I don't know when I could pay you back. He says, you pay me back when you can. I'll never ask you for the money. You'll pay me back when you can. So Rabbi Cohen says, listen, I can't, you know, I have to ask my, I have to ask my mother. So he goes over to his mother and says, you know, he says, what? Someone gave you, someone wanted to give us money. We're not poor. We need any money. He says, no. He said, it's a loan. He says, we don't know when we could pay you back. The mother said it. So Rabbi Cohen says, I asked him the same thing. And he says, he's never going to ask it for us back, but he'll get, he says, well, if we're able to pay it back, we'll be able to pay it back. And the mother says, you know, we need the money now, so maybe we'll take it and we'll pay it back when we're able to. So um, Rabbi Kohn went back to Mr. Rizla and says, we'll take the money and we appreciate it and he thanked him. Uh, you know, after you know, a few months later, he was starting to get more business with his, you know, being a mole. And he put the money on the side and he went back to Mr. Rizla and said, you know, I want to pay you back the money. And, and, you know, Mr. Israel went over to him and he says, I'm sorry, I, you know, I can't take it back. And he says, what do you mean? He said, you told me that this was a loan. You, you told me this is not Sadaka. You told me this was a loan. And he says, but yeah, I have to tell you what happened to me. He says, you know, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, a few years ago, I went bankrupt. And Robert Cohen says, of course, he rem-, you know, he didn't tell us that, but he says, of course, I remember. He says, the whole shul was talking about it. He was the wealthiest man in shul and he lost everything. And he says a few weeks after I went bankrupt, there was a person by the shul, but they have Mr. Lewinstein. And he came over to me and he gave me money. And he said, I don't need charity. I'm not poor. And he said, no, it's not a charity. It's a loan. He says, when do I pay it back? He says, whenever you can, but I'm never going to ask you for it. So I said, fine. I, you know, I took the, I took the money and Baruch Hashem, I was able to pay him back. When I went to pay him back, he said, no, 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 you can't pay me back. He says, what do you mean? You told me that it wasn't a loan. It was, you told me that it wasn't charity. It was a loan. He says, yeah, yeah, you're going to pay it back, but not to me. He says, you're going to find somebody else and you're going to pay them back. And that's how you're going to pay back. And that's what happened. He says, I, so I found you. He says, now I'm telling you the same thing. He says, you're not paying me back. The next time you hear of a family, you put this money inside and you feel, feel, you hear a family that needs it, you give it to them. And Rabbi Cohen says, he says, that's what they did. They said a few years later, there was a family that the father passed away and they needed the money and they wanted, you know, they wanted to pay it back. So they gave the $1,500 to somebody else. Meaning that they, they kept on passing it. But this wasn't the first story, you know, that happened like this. Meaning that there was another story that happened like this. And when you look at college, so you see that there is, a, there, there is a lineage, there is a connection. There is something that we saw over here that the, the reason why we do something is because there was something else that we could learn from. Meaning that everything that we do, everything chesed that we do, it's connected to Moshe, to Harsinai, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now does that mean that if you think that you're going to want to do something nice, and but you never saw anything in the Torah about it, that you're not going to do it? No, of course you're going to do it something, you're going to do chesed, you do something nice. But at the end of the day, the way that we become better people is we learn from other people. We learn from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, We learn from the Torah. We learn, really the bottom line is we learn from the Torah, which we're learning from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And any chesed that we do, we learn from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that is why 
the 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 Mishnah Perkei Avos begins. Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. The Torah that we have, this came from Har Sinai. Meaning that everything that we learn, we're doing it because we know that there is a source for it, there's an orchard. Everything that we're learning in this series, it's going to be connected to Har Sinai, it's going to be connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's not something that's all made up. Everything is connected. That you're taking something, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to be deliberate in judgment. And there's going to be a whole list of things that we're going to be able to work on. But this is one thing that we have to take away to realize that everything that we're learning in Perkei Avos, that comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm going to end with this thought. And I'm going to give a takeaway for today, but again, there could be many takeaways, but this is one of the takeaways. And the takeaway should be that when you think of yourself as a good person, you have to think of yourself, why? What defines you as a good person? Do you define yourself as a good person based on the laws and regulations and moral and ethics because you live in America, you live in Israel, you live in Canada, you live in any other you know, your place on earth? Or do you define yourself as a good person because this is what the Torah says? And if your answer is the latter, if your answer is I define myself as a good person because I follow the Torah, then it very much pays for you to go through Pirkei Avos and really look at everything that the Torah tells you to do to become a good person, and then ask that question again, am I really a good person? Now, I don't want to depress people and thinking that they're not, you know, good people or, or you know, in any means, way, or form. But it is important to stop for a second and think, give yourself sort of a, a true cheshben and nefesh. Am I really that good person? Am I really someone that, you know, like, is is on that level and the way that you're going to be able to answer that is going through the the you know perkyalbus and really looking into yourself and really looking if you are really truly a good person and even if you are there are so many there's going to be so many so many things that you can work on yourself to improve yourself to become a better person at the end of the day every single person wants to be a better person everybody wants to it so this is your opportunity this is going to be your opportunity to go through this series and learn and go and contemplate and figure out how am I going to change my life, how am I going to be a better person? With that, we will open up to questions. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay. I keep telling my brother who keeps arguing with me about religion. He says it's enough to be a good person, and I keep telling him morality is based on society, all relatives and time we live in. Oh, yeah. Amazing. I happen to be, I have a whole class in the Divinity series about relative morality. So I would strongly recommend if you would ever listen to that, like, like send that to him. Um, or if he wants, I'll be more than happy to speak to him. Um, okay. Next question. Sadly, more people have AIDS and cancer and tumor as well as today's society. It is true that there are different sicknesses in today's society, but overall at large, the age, the the the, the health and overall well-being of people, even the sick people, have drastically improved. How can one do mitzvot, l'shem shemayim, just for God? If God doesn't need anything, I do it for Him. It must be for schar. How can it be not for oneself? So, even if you do, and you're right, Hashem doesn't need you. Hashem doesn't need your mitzvahs. Hashem doesn't as much as other people would say that God God doesn't need you. When you do something, you're really doing it for yourself. You're really doing it for yourself. So the 
other aspect in, to look at it, just to put a little bit twist on it, and not that it's a bad thing to do it for yourself, but the other aspect you know to think about it is that when you do a mitzvah, it doesn't only affect you. It affects the world at large, meaning that if you do a sin, it affects the entire, the entire world gets judged, right? Every Roshana, the entire world gets judged. If you do something bad, it could affect someone in Japan, in China, in, in Australia, across the world, it could affect somebody. And if you do something good, it could affect somebody also across the world. So when you do something good, you're benefiting the entire, the entire world, not just you. Meaning that if you have someone that's working on helping earth, whatever it is, you know, like I, whatever, you know, ozone layer, whatever. It's not only affecting them, it's affecting the entire earth. So it, it helps everybody. So too when you do mitzvahs. If someone isn't happy living, so they're not living for themselves and they aren't living for God because God doesn't need anyone living, why make them go, go through life if they don't want? So that's a very, very heavy, it's a great question. It's a very, very heavy question. Um, so, so there's a lot of different ways that I can answer it. I can answer it in one way that if someone isn't happy living and they want to end it, it's because they think that it's going to end their suffering and it's going to end their pain. What makes you think that that will end, you know, your pain? Think about it as somebody like this. If somebody is, is um, sick, and they decide, you know what, let me move to a different country. Does that take away the sickness? It doesn't. Meaning that if someone's suffering and you're just moving, because at the end of the day, you're moving from this world to the next world, it's not going to take away the suffering. It's not going to take away the pain. The way that you take away the suffering and they take away the pain is you're dealing with it. So if it's depression, you're going to a therapist, you're taking medication, you're going working on yourself spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, whatever it is that you need to work on. The answer is not running away from something. It's never been the answer and it never will be the answer. That's why drugs alcohol, all these escapes, everybody knows that's not the answer. When people don't want to live, it's another aspect of escape. You're escaping where you are right now. That's just like drugs is not the answer. Alcohol is not the answer. So too, you know, moving to a different place is not the answer. So the reason why you're here and you may be going through a difficulty is not so that you're doing anything for God, but you're doing it for yourself, meaning that there is a you have to overcome it. Everybody has difficulties. Some people have it worse than others, 100%. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to work on it. To a certain extent, you have to go and you have to work on it. And God expects that to a certain extent. Again, I'm not judging anybody and I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not God to be able to say that what you're doing is wrong. But would you, if you're put in a certain situation, you have the ability to overcome it. And if you have the ability to overcome it, you have to at least try. And many people say, well, I've tried. I've tried to overcome it and I couldn't overcome it. And when I, you know, speak to these th- people and they say those things and I break it down, they say they try because, and they really believe it. They really 100% believe it. But when push comes to shove, they didn't, unfortunately, they didn't try. You go to therapy, I went to like three, four, five, six, seven therapists, they didn't help, so I don't want to do anything. Medications, no, they bother me, so I don't take it. So in their mind, they tried it, and they, it didn't work, so they don't help it. If you try something, and it doesn't work, and you just give up, that doesn't mean that you tried. 
Because you could have gone to the therapist, but you could have never done what the therapists have said. And I, I could tell you this, you know, from a personal experience where I speak to people and I give them advice of X, Y, and Z. And they come back and say, you know what? It hasn't gotten better. And I asked them, did you work on, you know, we spoke about doing this and this. Did you do it? And they were like, yeah, I did it. And it didn't work. And I said, okay, explain to me why you did it. And they explained to me and they didn't really do it. Like they did it like 5%. And I'm like, come on. That's like someone that says, you know what? I'm going to open up a business. And how do you open up a business? I'm going to rent a place and I'm going to put a name on the sign over there. And maybe I'll sell like a tomato or something like that. I'm like, okay, you you didn't really try. You know, like you didn't really try. So what, what can you expect? So at the end of the day, if someone isn't happy living, and they think they're not living for themselves and they're not living for, uh, you know, for God, then what's the point of living? They're drastically, drastically need to reassess their entire life, their entire life, because something is, is very much off in many, I would guess to say in many places. But again, this is a very heavy question. It's a great question. But again, if you want, you can reach out to me and we could uh, set up time to, to discuss it. Uh, well, this is interesting. Any schools for Rabbi Meir Balanes or anything we need, uh, we need to do. There are many, uh, uh many different, uh, type of, uh, schools, but I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, mention anything, uh, right, uh, you know, right now. I mean, I probably the most famous school of Meir Balanes is that Staka school, but we, again, we're not gonna mention, uh, you know, the, go through anything right now. Uh, okay. Why are we mourning when we're counting down the days of the wedding of Hashem to Klal Yisrael? Oh, we're talking about the Omer and, okay. So, and why do we dance? Oh, uh, okay, fine. So let's start. Why do we dance around the fire to celebrate like Bomber when our Bikiva students pass away? Okay. <laughs> this itself, by the way, is a class. Um, and I do have to end very shortly. So I'm going to try to answer it very briefly. I'm thinking, I'm wondering if I have a class on this because I definitely spoke about this. I, I think I did, uh, record this answer or at least most of this answer on Torah anytime on Lag Bomer, but I may be wrong on it. But, um, in any case, the, um, uh, why are we counting down? So, so the, the question is really is why are we mourning? We're mourning where we're, the reason why we're mourning now, we don't listen to music, we don't, you know, shave our beards, we don't take, you know, haircuts now, is because Rabbi Akiva students, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva passed away. Why did they pass away? Because Lena Hagu Kabbalah Zelaz that they didn't treat each other with the respect that they, you know, they deserve. So while we are counting the Omer at the same point in time, we are mourning not because we are going to the wedding of Akadish Baruch but we're mourning for the loss during this time period of Rabbi Akiva's students who are great, great giants in Torah. Uh, why do we dance around the fire to celebrate like Baomer? Um, uh, so, so again, the, the answer to this is very heavy, but, but the short answer is the, we did, the, this is the time where Rabbi Akiva's students stopped you know, there was, they stopped passing away. Again, there's a question that puts on, well, why they stopped passing away because there was no more left of them to pass away. So that's why they passed away. But again, that's a really lengthy answer. And we spoke about it previously. So I'm pretty sure. I'm pre- like 99% sure. So go to uh, Torah anytime you go on like Baomer. We did, uh, you know, speak about this at, um, you know, at length on this. Okay. Let's, uh, close it. Uh, let's close up over here. Um, uh, why doesn't Nashan give us a chance not to be in pain? 
wasn't the world created to do good. A hundred percent, the world was created to be in good, but if we're in pain, that is for our benefit. Some people are put into this world to correct things that happened in a previous life, and that's just one of many answers. But they were put in this world to create, to, to fix themselves from, from some sort of previous, uh, you know, issue. So whatever the reason is that if someone is going through pain, and again, and I'm telling you this just because I speak to so many people, everybody is going through. The most successful people to the most broken people, everyone has something that they're going through. Granted, some people are going off worse than others, but the reason why we're going through it, we don't always know, but there is a reason for it. And the purpose of what we need to focus on is how to overcome that. Not to wallow in the pain, but to grow from it and to overcome it. Easier said than done, a 100%. But at least you have to achieve it in the right direction. Again, something that you could also reach out to me and we'll speak about because I don't have time to speak about. What about, okay, last question. What about the good suffer? Um, I'm trying to, um, I am trying to understand this. I, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't follow the question and the wicked lead happy lives. I believe the question is why do good people, su- why do some Good people suffer, and why do bad people can sometimes lead to happy lives? So again, this is uh, um, if you message me privately, I can send you. We have a link. We spoke about, I want to say two hours on this topic, but the uh, and also you could also go into Shar uh, Shar speaks about it also at length. And um, but the the short answer is that if if good well there's no short answer because there's many answers because we don't know all the calculations of Hakadosh Baruch but why do sometimes good people suffer? Again, it could be an answer like we you know we said previously that uh, you know it could be from a previous life a previous life they did something wrong and they have to go through a certain you know fixing of it and that's why they're suffering. It, you know it could be to give them extra reward. It could be something to help them fix themselves. It could be to 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 get them to their ultimate goal. Why do wicked prosper? It could be that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is paying them in this world instead of giving them to the next, instead of giving them payment in the next. So maybe, you know, there's some wicked people that did one or two good, few good things. So they paid them over here. And many people say, well, I also want to get paid over here. Getting paid over here for your good, while we want good and may a Kaddish Baruch Hu give us only good in this world. But what, when a Kaddish Baruch Hu pays us in this world, it's pennies on the dollar. So when somebody looks like, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a little kid and uh, you go over to the little kid and you say, what do you want? The little kid doesn't think big. They say, I want a lolly. He says, no, no, no. I want you to think big. Get anything that you want. The little kid said, anything that I want, anything that you want. So the little kid thinks about it and he says, I want a hundred lollies. And the guy's like, no, no, no. I want you to think even bigger. He says, bit more than a hundred lollies. And he's thinking and he's thinking and he says, I want to go to an amusement park. I want to go on all the rides that I need. I want to be able to go to sleep whenever I want. And I want a thousand lollies. And he said, fine. Okay, fine. You give him all they want, a thousand lollies. Now, you look at, the, you know, this person. This person was the richest person in the world. This person was willing to give this little kid Ten billion dollars, and this little kid asked for a thousand lollies and a trip to an amusement park and to go to sleep whenever he wanted. You look at it and be like, "Wait a minute, what a waste!" Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's the way that it works. 
in this world a payment. Uh, when a wicked person gets paid in this world, it's like the wicked person says, God, can you give me a thousand lollies? And God says, I have $10 billion that I want to give you. You want a thousand lollies? And like, yeah, I want a thousand lollies. The Rolls Royce, the mansion, and, and the vacations, the private jet, and a thousand lollies. That's what I want. So the Kaddish says, fine, you know, I'll give you all this. But when you come up to the next world, all that's going to look like, it's going to look like a thousand lollies. So you look at why wicked people prosper. They prosper in this world because of the little good, good thing they did. God pays them in this world. The thousand lollies is supposed to give them the ten billion dollars in the next world. So again, there's a lot more to discuss about it, but that's just the brief answer, you know, on it. And yes, it is difficult going through these difficult, you know, times. And again, you could also I'll I'll put my number in the chat over here. Uh, so if anybody wants, you could you know message me, especially these situations, and we could set up a time to speak, and we could um, you know uh, we we could try to to walk walk you through because a lot of these questions are more you know particular than generalized. In any case, thank you all for joining. And until next time, may you have an amazing week, amazing Shabbos, and very, very importantly, take away something, learn something, and be able to change something in your life. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.